So good. Let's stand together, you guys. And we're going to kind of prepare our hearts for just a moment before Dr. Bradford comes and um, begins to lead us in a second teaching. Um, how many heard him yesterday speak? It was just spectacular. And I cannot wait for today. But um, this morning, 19 years ago, I don't know where you were uh, 19 years ago. How many were in your, your mother's arms? Uh, somebody was changing your diaper 19 years ago. But 19 years ago today, I remember the day before 9-11, I was in Chicago with my friend Spencer Jones. We went to a, my first Chicago Cubs baseball game. It was on a Monday night uh, in Chicago, and it was perfect weather. It was 70 degrees. We sat at Wrigley Field, and Spencer and I were at the game, and we were saying, could life be better? We literally said that. How great is this? What a great life. We're at Wrigley Field the day before 9-11. I drove back about three and a half hours that night uh, back to Grand Rapids, Michigan. Uh, got up in the morning, uh, was on my way to uh, the office, and um, I heard that a plane, like a commuter plane, it hit the Twin Towers. I got into my office there, turned on the TV. We had a staff prayer meeting planned for uh, 9 o'clock. It was about 8.58 at this time. And uh, <coughs> I saw there was a fire coming, and then I watched another plane hit. And at that point, I knew our world was in trouble. Little did I know uh, that September 10th, people say, 2001, September 10th was the last regular day in the United States. And really from 9-11 forward, the last 19 years has been a different time in many ways, globally, uh, domestically, in our neighborhoods. But there's a lot of people that this day around uh, the world, and especially in New York and family members, this day is a different day. It's pulled out from among the stats and the statistics of life, and it becomes a living day of raw emotion and memory, even 19 years later. We're gonna pray for our country. We're gonna pray for uh, those who have loved ones uh, who died on this day. And let's just ask God's great grace upon this great nation of the United States and this great world that God has created. So Lord, we just pray this morning, Lord, as many are around the world, Lord Jesus, Lord, commemorating, but Lord, it's hard to know exactly what we ought to remember. But Lord, we set our heart upon the faithfulness of our creator and our sustainer, Lord. Father, you have uh, given us hope, God, in the midst of moments in history, Jesus that are difficult to comprehend. Lord, we pray for the loved ones, God, that think back on this day 19 years ago with the same emotion as though it was 19 minutes ago. Lord, they'll grieve the rest of their life, and well, they should. Bless the widows and the widowers, Lord, and the children and grandchildren that lost fathers and mothers, and uh, all those that lost loved ones, Jesus, we just pray that today would be a day of great comfort, Lord. The God of all comfort, the God of all comfort would flood their hearts and minds. We give you praise. We pray for our country, the upcoming election. Lord, that no matter which way the election goes, we are going to be okay. And Father, we are going to be the church and we're going to be a blessing to people. We're going to be a blessing to our neighbors, Lord. And Father, we are not governed, Lord, by government, God, 
And Lord, in the sense that our spiritual life, Lord, our inner life, God, the part that is happy is the man cannot be touched by outward circumstances, Lord. We just prayed, Lord, over Minneapolis. We pray over our country, Lord, that you would bring great revival and all the aspirations of this great nation, Lord, could be fully realized, Jesus. Father, help us in these days, Lord, to be a blessing to our neighbor and to be a blessing to those around us, God. We give you praise and honor in Jesus' mighty name. Amen and amen. You can be seated. It's our honor to welcome back one of our dear friends that we learned yesterday was married in this room uh, to the woman he is sitting next to, and that's a good thing. And uh, we are so blessed to have Dr. Jim Bradford. Can we welcome Dr. Bradford back to North Central University? Thank you, President Hagan. Thank you, and Karen, so great to be with you both today. I just think they're some of the most remarkable leaders we have, and God bless you, I'm honored to be here. Thank you, Dr. Good, for the invitation to be here as well, as well as your, uh, oh, there she is, as well as uh, some of the biology staff. We, we are here to, even though my world was more in the physics engineering world at the University of Minnesota, we are here to celebrate the launching of the biology majors, and uh, we, we're incredibly uh, grateful. Met, uh, spent part of yesterday afternoon with the, with, with the freshmen, students in the biology major. What a great group. And uh, they're going to change the world. We're all a part of being about something bigger than ourselves. And thank you for the great tribute, uh, Scott, for uh, the tribute to 9-11 and those that laid down their lives as first responders and those who were victims of uh, you know, 3,000 that died there. And the whole world, of course, since the uh, killing of George Floyd, the whole world's been praying for Minneapolis. And we, we pray that there will be a great spiritual awakening here in this city. You will do something great. The Lord will. All right. I'd like to go with you to the very first verse of the Bible and the first words of the Bible today. Yesterday, we looked at those three statements. The universe has a beginning. The laws of nature are finely tuned, and life is coded with information. Virtually all sciences, all scientists in those three fields of cosmology, physics, and biology believe that today. And the amazing thing is not one of those statements takes away our faith even though that is the rhetoric out there, that faith is the enemy of science. In fact, one of the disillusioning things about um, all my years in research and engineering at the university, we, I, I found out, you know, I went in thinking, you know, faith is subjective, but science is objective. And, and this is what we're hearing. You know, science is the, the last word on everything. It's the end all and be all. And uh, so, you know, we reject faith, but we obey science. The reality is that there is a lot of subjectiveness in science. I was amazed at how scientists could look at the same data, data and actually hate each other because 
because they were in different interpretive camps about what does that data mean? How do we, how do we understand that data? I'd watch them in the literature. They'd argue with each other. They'd fight. And science is, even compared to 100 years ago, we look at our universe very differently than we did 100 years ago. And who knows 100 years from now if Jesus doesn't come back first? Who knows how we'll look at the universe? And, and so do not buy into this lie that, that science is for sure and faith is fantasy. I mean, theology is the study of Scripture. Science is the study of nature. And both of those studies are interpretive, but, but Scripture and nature are infallible. Because God's responsible for nature. He's responsible for Scripture. We may struggle with our interpretation of both of those, but ultimately, there will be no contradiction between, between what Scripture actually says and what science um, and what nature actually is. But, but science is a highly interpretive process, trying to figure out how does nature really work. And so don't swallow this lie that you can't be curious and even engaged in the scientific enterprises um, and also be a person of faith. That's roughly where we were yesterday. Today we come to the first words of the Bible, in the beginning. Some, some people, of course, tongue-in-cheek, think this is evidence of Baseball in the Bible, right? The big inning. But there it is. In the beginning, there was a beginning. And, and God created, in that beginning, God created. In other words, our first exposure to the character of God is creativity. His capacity to create. To take something that's not there and put it there which infers the capacity to see ahead of time what could be, which is a mark of every creative person, to see ahead of time what could be before it's actually there. So this is an amazing God we serve. He's awesome. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that means that the, where the first description of God is his creativity, the first proposition of Scripture is that you and I are here on purpose. And this universe is here on purpose. We're not the random product of the blind forces of the universe. We are here on purpose. The new atheism would tell you that you're an accident, that all of us are here by random chance. But God has created us on purpose and for purpose. So in honor of you uh, biology majors, uh, l l let me just give you a little glimpse into the the sheer genius of what God has created. There's a biochemist and geneticist and writer by the name of Michael Denton, and he is not a Christian. He's an agnostic. I always like to quote non-Christians with this kind of stuff. He says this, and for those of you in the room, here it is on the screen. To grasp the reality of life, as it's been revealed by molecular biology, we must magnify a cell by a thousand million times until it's 20 kilometers in diameter and resembles a giant airship large enough to cover a great city like London or New York. And what we would see then would be an object of unparalleled complexity and adaptive design. So let's put a time out there. You know, our body's made of cells, right, biologically? If you're an average-sized person, you have, conservatively speaking, at least 10 trillion with the T cells in your body. I mean, a trillion is almost an unimaginably large number. 
You have 10 trillion, some estimates up to 30 trillion cells in your body. He said, let's just take one ten trillionth of you and let's blow it up until it's 12 and a half miles wide. And it's like a big spaceship hovering over a huge city like Los Angeles, like New York or London. He said, what we would see, and the reason you blow it up is to see a cell in its, what he calls, unparalleled complexity and adaptive design. And here's how he begins to describe what we see would see if one ten trillionth of your body was blown up 12 and a half miles wide. On the surface of the cell, we would see millions of openings, like the ports of a vast spaceship, opening and closing to allow a continual stream of materials to flow in and out of it. And if we were to kind of go into one of those openings, into the interior of, your, of the cell, if we were to go into one of those openings, we would find ourselves in a world of supreme technology and bewildering complexity. This is one ten trillionth of, you, of your body. He goes on to say, and, and get this, for somebody who's not a Christian, doesn't believe in a creator God. It is the sheer universality of perfection the fact that everywhere we look, to whatever depth we look, we find an elegance and an ingenuity of an absolutely, and look at the word he throws in, transcending quality, which so mitigates against the idea of chance. Phew. Well, can you say amen to an agnostic? That's exactly the genius of our creator God. And then... Uh, and then the astronomer and mathematician Fred Hoyle, who's quite famous in the 20th century uh, from Cambridge University, he's, he's an a, he, he actually is an atheist, and his science at least led him not to Christianity as we know it, but some, some acknowledgement there may be something beyond us. He's an astro astronomer and mathematician, and he calculated the odds, and this statement's on the screen for you, he calculated the odds of 2,000 en enzymes. Enzymes are the building blocks of proteins, and proteins run the cells in our body. He calculated the odds of 2,000 enzymes, each performing specific tasks necessary to form a single, just an elementary bacterium like E. coli, to be 1 to 10 to the 40,000th power. Okay, time for a little middle school math. Anybody smarter than a fifth grader? I hate that show. I can't answer half those questions. What you learned in middle school was 10 times 10, you could write that as 10 to the 2 power, right? 10 times 10. And 10 times 10 is? Not a trick question. 100. Okay, so 10 times 10 is 100, right? So 10 to the, and 100 is the number one with how many zeros? Two. So 10 to the two is the number one with two zeros. 10 cubed, 10 to the third power is 10 times 10 times 10, which is 1,000. And 1,000 is the number one with how many zeros? Three. So 10 to the two is one with two. 10 to the three power is the number one with three zeros. 10 to the 40,000th power is the number one with how many zeros? 40,000 zeros. He said the chance by random of 
2,000 enzymes doing exactly what it takes to build a protein structure is one chance, by random chance, in 10 to the 40,000. In mathematics, we consider anything less likely than 1 in 10 to the 15th power as a mathematical impossibility. So, this became a very famous quote in the 20th century. Fred Hoyle says this, we'll put it up on the screen. A common sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super intellect has monkeyed with physics. Because <laughs> those monkeys always show up. But monkeyed with physics, as well as chemistry and biology. And that there are no blind forces worth speaking about in nature. The numbers one calculates from the fact seem to me so overpowering as to put this conclusion beyond question. This is partly why he moved from atheism. Uh, and, and you wonder how these, these unbelievable improbabilities can leave people atheists. And one of the ways they do that is to say, I know it's, it's so remotely unlikely that it's almost impossible, but the fact that we're here is that it must have happened anyway. I think that's cheating. That's intellectual cheating. And then, if we go back to Genesis chapter 1, if we read just a little farther, verse 1's, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then, at the pinnacle of his creative genius, a little about what we've just been reading about. Verse 27, God created man in his own image. He created you and I, human beings, in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Now, there's a lot to unpack here, but I don't know if you've had a pet dog, a pet cat. We have a pet bunny. The existence of whose, the purpose of whose existence kind of fails me. Um, I, I don't, I don't, seems to be a purposeless life. And this bunny and I have never bonded, ever. But there is something that's true of my wife and I, who loves the bunny. There's something true of my wife and I that's not true of our pet bunny or your pet dog. And that's that we were uniquely created in God's image. And that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And this means that because God created us, it means more than he's a genius. It means that there's something unique about you and me that is, that is of incredible value. And that value is not rooted in your personality. That value is not rooted in how much money you have in the bank. That value is not determined by the prevailing prejudices of the majority or by some tyrannical dictator who's going to decide whether you have value or not. I want to tell you there's only one thing. There's only one thing about you that, that, that nobody, no human being can, can take away from you. You've been created in the image of God and you have immense value in his sight. This is it. And we're trying to make a case for universal human rights and yet our culture has rejected universal truth. Well, what's right for me is right for me. What's right for you is right for you. Just don't do anything to hurt me, and it's okay. How do you carry that ethic into a universal case for human rights? You cannot, because there's no absolute value of the human being if, if there's not value that transcends the value that one human being puts on another or, or just you convincing yourself you're worth something. This is it. God, because God has created you, you are embedded 
with unbelievable value and there's something true about you that is not true of the rest of the animal kingdom. You are more than just a higher level animal. That may be somewhat true biologically, but you have been imprinted with the image of God in a way no animal in, in, in the created order has been. There's no one like you. I had a conversation with an atheist over here years and years ago when I was a student at the University of Minnesota. I appreciated his honesty. He said, Jim, he said, I will grant you this. If God did create, that would be the game changer. That would be the game changer. Because it does mean then there's something unique about human beings and there's something unique about our accountability to him. And then... And then in Isaiah chapter 40, God uses an astronomy lesson to tell us something else about what it means to be created by God as a human being. In Isaiah 40, which is the greatest chapter in the Bible on the greatness of God, it's worth a lot of time, that entire chapter, just diving into it. But at about verse 26 of Isaiah 40, Isaiah says, lift up your eyes. He's, he's, he's unpacking what God's been showing him. He said, lift up your eyes to the heavens, and who created these? So assuming it's at night and there's no clouds, what do you see when you look up, 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 up into the skies? Stars, just millions of stars, right? And then Isaiah asks the question, who brings out all the starry hosts one by one and calls forth each of them by name? I mean, who did that? And the answer is the creator. All those stars. And look, he named every one of them. Why? Because he created them. Everything he creates is important. You know, you feel differently about your kid than every other kid if you, if you someday will have children. Because they're yours. They're part of what you helped create. You feel different about your piece of art than everybody else's piece of art because that's, that's what you did. God created you. You have immense value that no human being can take away from you. And also, he put his name on. He, he, he's named you. you. You're not a number. You have a name. He said every, even every star has a name. And because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. So we can imagine, you know, Isaiah, without telescopes, he just looks in the sky. See, I mean, just with your naked eye, there's probably more stars than you could number. But now we know some amazing things. Here's a picture of our galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy. Uh, this is, of course, uh, an artist's rendition. Nobody's been outside of our galaxy to get this shot on their iPhone. But you'll notice from the, from the middle, about halfway down on one of the spiral arms is, is Earth. It, we're, we're right there around, around one of the stars, Sun. Uh, it's an amazing galaxy. And to understand how, how many stars are in our galaxy, you need to understand something about the speed of light. All right, ready for a little physics lesson? The speed of light is 186,000 miles per second. I mean, our cars may be able to go 80 or 90 miles per hour, but light is 186,000 miles per second. If you get on a plane in Minneapolis and say fly to Tokyo, it would probably take you 10, 12 hours. But light circles the entire globe seven and a half times in every one second. It's blazing fast, to say the least. So our Milky Way galaxy, if we were to go, start on the left, go across the middle to the right, if you go to one side of our galaxy to the other at the speed of light, it would take you 100,000 years at, at seven and a half times around the world every second. 
take you 100,000 years. That means our galaxy is big enough for, we think, conservatively speaking, 200 billion with the B stars in our galaxy alone. And then we have a neighbor. Our largest galaxy neighbor in the universe is Andromeda. What a beautiful galaxy that is. You have maybe, as I have, maybe seen Andromeda through an amateur telescope. That's our nearest galaxy neighbor, another beautiful spiral ring galaxy with billions more stars. And it would take you two and a half million years at the speed of light to get to our nearest neighbor. I mean, this starts giving you a headache. And that's our nearest galaxy neighbor. And then the third picture is what we call a Hubble deep field picture. You go, oh, more stars. Well, every one of those points of light is another galaxy, like Andromeda and Milky Way. That's one thin sliver of the night sky. There's probably 10,000 galaxies in that little sliver of the night sky alone. Unbelievable. And look what God says to Isaiah. He said, first of all, I've named every star. And because of my great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Because I'm that awesome and that big. And I'm that great and I created them all. They belong to me. And I'm not going to lose track of any of them. And so here's the great news. Here's the amazing news. That not only because you're created by God, not only do you have value that no human being can take away from you, but God can never lose track of you. And that's why in the very next verse, God asks the ultimate, so what was that you were saying question? Because in the next verse, verse verse 27, so why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my cause is disregarded by my God? I mean, have you ever felt that way? Like God's sort of forgotten your name and lost your address. Like, like, where are you, God? All of us go through times like that. But we can't think emotionally about our lives. We've got to think theologically about our lives. The fact is, God created you. So not, not only do you have immense value that nobody can take away from you, but God can never lose track of you. Look, there's no such things as insignificance in the sight of God, because God has created you. You may feel just one of seven and a half billion people on the face of the earth, but God knows your name and he can never lose track of you because he's the creator. And here's the thing I really love. It's the next verse, verse 27, verse 28, where, where it says, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator, capital C. He's the creator of the ends of the earth and he will not grow tired or weary. So here's what, because of Genesis 1, 1, We've been created. In Genesis 1, 27, we've been created in the image of God. It means that you have value no human being can take away from you. It means that God can never lose track of you. And thank God for this. It means you can never wear him out. He's too big. I don't know, I've had a lot of people tell me over the years, oh, pastor, I feel guilty when I pray for myself because God's got so many people to worry about. Well, first of all, I got over that false guilt long ago. I mean, I pray for myself just in case nobody else is. I can't leave that base uncovered. But look, God, my last math, our last math question for today. In, in, this, in mathematics, you can, you can take infinity and represent it with a little number. It's the number eight lying on its side, right? Infinity, And you can use it multiplying, dividing, and you can divide into infinity. So here's, here's a math quiz. Infinity divided by 2 equals 
Infinity, right, you got it. A musician math major, right here. Infinity divided by two equals infinity because that just makes sense, right? Limitless, half of limitless by definition is still limitless. 200 people in this chapel maybe, infinity divided by 200 equals infinity. Seven and a half billion people on the face of the earth, infinity divided by 7.5 billion equals infinity. It's like, it doesn't matter how many people God's got to take care of. It says he never grows weary or tired. Your need is not some kind of black hole that wears God out. Because he's the creator. He says he's the creator. So you can't wear him out. He just always is himself. You can't slice him. You can't dice him. You can't reduce him. You can't deplete him. He's just flat out God all the time. And he's always all completely available to you. It's not like he's a pie that you slice up and the more other people get, the less you get. Or the more you get, the less other people get. No, he's the infinite God. And he never grows tired or weary. Your need, however deep it is and how often it comes before God, will never wear him out. Listen, he's your creator. He's your creator. You have value nobody can take away from you. Hallelujah. He'll never lose track of you and you can never wear him out. Because he's the creator God. And that's why it stuns me in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. Paul writes, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. What an interesting word for him to use. He marshals Genesis 1.1. He marshals the might and power and awesomeness and limitness of a great creator God. And he says, when you come to Jesus Jesus, who created the heavens and the earth, that same creative genius is starting to recreate you from the inside out. You're not just God's renovation project. You're a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. And he is Lord of heaven and earth. Hallelujah. Will you stand with me? Will you just lift your voice and praise him right now? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. You're the mighty God. We honor you and we praise you, Lord. Hallelujah. No one is like you, Lord God. We praise you and bless you today. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, Jesus. Hallelujah. Lord.